Okay, so uh, yes, here's, here's kind of where we've been, okay? How do you respond to challenges? Um, what James is doing is he is helping us to evaluate what is real faith. And, and the way I've outlined his notes is by turning these into questions. So question number one we looked at is how do you respond to challenges? Certainly the original audience, the 12 tribes that are dispersed abroad, the original uh, initial wave of persecution has come to Christians. And so those Jewish believers of the mid-first century are having to flee Jerusalem, their hometown, and uh, they are settling as outsiders in uh, the surrounding areas. And so James says, remember, real faith is demonstrated in how you and I respond to challenges. Um, remember, he talks in that very first chapter about trials. Uh, we've talked, you guys mentioned this, does your faith lead to godly action? It's not just being a hearer of the word, but being a doer of the word. That exemplifies true Christianity. Uh, we talked about, are your words under control? Linda mentioned the, the tongue being a fire, and it, it, the, our mouths show our hearts. And uh, so chapter 3 talks about our words being under control. We talked about wisdom. Uh, godly wisdom versus worldly wisdom, and, and whether that's politics, whether that's financial thought, uh, whether that's how to climb the corporate ladder, that uh, Christians follow a different program of wisdom, and we reject largely the uh, cultural, uh, worldly form of wisdom. And then these last few weeks, we've talked about how do you handle conflict. And uh, as we've mentioned, that conflict comes when we don't get our way, we want something so bad, and we sin when we don't get it. So today, James is just going to tighten it down more, man. I mean, you, feel, you thought you've been convicted in the last weeks? Uh, make sure your seat belts are fastened. Uh, he's going to ask the question today, are you a critical person? And I just want you to know, uh, this was incredibly convicting for me, so I have a lot of work to do in this department. Um, chapter 4, verse 11 now remember, he's coming off of the discussion about conflict. He's still talking about the pride. And remember that, the pride and arrogance that drives this idea that I should have my way right away, regardless of what it costs anybody else. And uh, remember, he talks about God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So he still has this theme of pride and arrogance uh, that, that's on his mind. And that's going to lead him now to talk about how we apply that uh, pride and arrogance driving how we view other people. Chapter 4, verse 11. So do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. And there is only one lawgiver and judge the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? Welcome to Sunday School. Here we go. Um, let me ask you a question just to start off here, okay? Is judging others sinful? Yeah, don't look at your notes. Look up here. Is judging others sinful? What do you think? Okay, not always, can be. Anybody else want to participate? Is judging others sinful? 
Okay, examining fruit, yeah, is it the same thing? It might be a part of it, I suppose. Okay, we confuse judging with opinion. Uh, so let me tell you a story. Um, during probably the darkest season of my life, I, I had heard the gospel. I was probably actively rejecting it more than any other time in my life. Uh, but God was pursuing me. I didn't realize that, but God was pursuing me. This is I was an early college student, and uh, there was um, some friends at my college and uh, there was this one young lady who was a professing Christian, and uh, and I'm trying to figure my life out, and I'm I'm not walking with the Lord, but I'm, I'm under conviction. So it's a really interesting time, and I just, I'll never forget this exchange that uh, she was talking about, you know, her Christianity and her faith and her this and her that, and uh, and she came back in. Um, I can't, I can't remember the context. You know, it's it's like you know the cafeteria the next morning, and she's just is hung over as can be right and she had been out partying all night going from sorority to sorority and 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 i remember asking an innocent question it went something like this um i thought you were a believer i thought you were a christian help me understand the partying thing that happened last night and she rattled off matthew 7 verse 1 uh, faster than I heard anybody recite a Bible verse. Judge not, lest you be judged. Oh, okay. Uh, that's and and that was the response. You ever had a situation like that? You know, you're asking a question and a person just slams slams you back with "Judge not, lest you be judged." That's not a Christian. So, and again, I, I'm not a Christian. I, I thought, well, I don't think she's applying that verse right, but I didn't know any better and. So, but that's the sort of scenario you get, and, and it seems like, and I think especially in the Bible Belt, I think especially in the South here, where there's a a, a a shrinking, but nonetheless significant presence of people that seem to care about the Bible and care about church and care about Christianity. When it comes to this issue of me making an evaluation on your life. There are a lot of professing Christians who believe that is just categorically a spiritual foul. And they're throwing penalty flags that that's not something we should be doing. So is judging others sinful? Well, I want you to turn in your Bible and uh, uh, look at this with me. Uh, flip over to the book of Proverbs for a moment. And, and let me just, this is probably going to be obvious but you may have an encounter someday like I did and get caught flat-footed and, and not be sure how to respond to that. I don't think the person that says, judge not lest you be judged, has really thought through what they're saying. Because upon further reflection, you realize that the the young lady that was hung over that was rebuking me for my question about her Christian profession in light of her night of drunkenness um, was making a judgment on me, wasn't she? She was violating her own principle in judging me. Makes sense, right? Some of you are like, that's deep, Pastor Keith, I missed that. Um, right? If judging is wrong, I can't go around 
judging other people about their judgment. This is is the intolerance of tolerance, isn't it? Um, But but can can we just pull the car over for a moment and agree that we don't have to be philosophers to understand that that's, that's just dumb. <laughs> it's just dumb. You and I make evaluations every day. We form opinions every day. You ready for this? We judge every day and everybody else does too. And those that uh, uh, say that they don't are deceiving themselves. Yes, Roger. I don't know. See, that's that's the thing. But I'm not even talking about people like like. I'm just saying, you know, people out there that think, you know, we Christians are judgmental. It's like, well, dude, you're doing the same thing, right? So so let let's just let's just agree that we cannot have this thing called life if we're not making evaluations and judgments and decisions and opinions. We, we can't do it. You couldn't have gotten to church here without making an evaluation this morning. I, you, you looked at the weather. You looked at your car. You looked at your outfit. You looked at breakfast. You looked at whatever, right? And you make opinions about all these things. So just more serious though, look at Proverbs chapter 1. And, and let me just help you to see that making judgments in life is necessary. It's necessary. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8. Now just, just follow me on this, okay? Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. Verse 10. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without cause, let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole as those who go down to the pit... We will find all kinds of precious wealth. We will fill our houses with spoil. Throw in your lot with us. We shall all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Now, here's my question. How on earth do you do that without making a judgment call on other people? We haven't even got to the end of the first chapter of Proverbs, the book of wisdom. And Solomon is saying, son, if you want to be wise, you have to learn to evaluate other people. You ready for this? You have to learn how to judge other people. It's, it's been here the whole time. And, and, and I, that we're going to stop there, but just keep reading Proverbs. The book of Proverbs says a wise person, a mark of a wise person is somebody who knows how to size up and evaluate both people and circumstances and steer a course of wisdom. Not only can you not be a human being and not make evaluations, you can't be a godly and wise believer unless you learn to judge other people. So this idea that judging others is somehow categorically sinful is is just wrong. I mean, it's just it's just wrong. Um, interestingly, you don't need to turn there, but in Second Timothy chapter three. Paul's going to say something very similar, lest we think, well, you know, that's the Old Testament, Pastor Keith. The New Testament is tolerance and grace, and Jesus just wants us to love everybody, right? Uh, no. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, Paul writes these words. Uh, he, he's describing in the last days, right? Men are boastful, lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irre- irreconcilable. He's saying there's all these ungodly people well how are you going to know who those people are 
if you're not making an evaluation about them, if you're not judging them to be such, it's not unchristian to make judgments like this. In fact, it is a reflection of your maturity when you make judgments like this. And he says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 5, after giving all these the descriptions of these ungodly people, he says in verse 5, they hold to a form of godliness, although the, they have denied its power. Here's Paul's takeaway. You ready? You ready? Avoid such men as these. Well, how are you going to do that if you're not judging them, if you're not evaluating them? Okay? So don't buy in to the cultural Christian lie that says, judge not, lest you be judged, means I am not allowed to judge anybody, question them, come to a conclusion, have an opinion, evaluate, or in any other way, form a biblically, uh, a biblically derived judgment on who they are. Uh, Heidi mentioned fruit. A moment ago. That, that, that's what Jesus says, right? You will know them by their fruits. Which means we have to make an evaluation. Okay, so making judgments is necessary. In fact, let's go a step further. Did you know the same Jesus that said, judge not lest you be judged, told us to judge? Let me prove that to you. This is the lesser known judgment verse in the Gospels. Turn with me to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. I, I, I hope you're okay with getting a running start. We are going to get to James, but we're getting a running start here because I, I think we hear this, and if you're like me in terms of my experience, I get uncomfortable with this judgment thing because there's this, there's this other narrative out there that says Christians shouldn't judge. And what I'm arguing is that's just dumb. That's just wrong. That's just reckless even in terms of uh, that conclusion john chapter 7 verse 24 let me give you a little bit of the context and then we'll look at the verse we're interested in here uh, jesus is engaging uh, in um, uh, conversation with the crowd and, and some of the religious leaders and um, in fact at this point they're they're seeking his life remember things have escalated leading up to his uh, death and resurrection so they're, they're actually looking for an opportunity to kill him and in chapter 7, verse 19, Jesus said, Did, did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? <laughs> Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? And Jesus said to them, I did one deed, and you all marvel. You say, What did he do? Remember, he, um, uh, this is the, uh, yeah, this is after Peter's, Peter's profession, and I think this is when he, um, he healed somebody on the Sabbath, if I remember right. Anyway, so verse 22, for this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, uh, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. And if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Okay, so they're trying to kill him because he heals somebody on the Sabbath day. And he's going, wait a minute, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. The, the, the point is, is, is not, uh, the, oh, it's the Sabbath day, so I can't do any good thing. I can't heal somebody, right? And look at this, verse 24. Do not judge according to appearance. Here's a command now. But judge with a righteous judgment. So here's Jesus commanding the people to make a righteous judgment. He doesn't say judging is sinful, judging is always wrong. He says, no, you need to judge. You ought to judge. Just do it rightly. Do it biblically. 
And they were, you know, they were all in the weeds, you know, getting this all wrong on the Sabbath. So Jesus commands believers to judge. Now we're going to talk about what that means and doesn't mean in a moment, but just understand that uh, when someone says, judge not lest you be judged, you can say, oh, um, so what do you do with John 7, 24? Uh, never heard of that. Well, let's look it up together. See right here, Jesus says you need to judge with a right judgment. So how does that square with Matthew 7, 1? And you can hopefully have a really good conversation with your confused friend at that point. Okay, number three, there are sinful forms of judgment to avoid. And what I would say to you, and this is, this is not surprising, probably most of you already understand this, there is a godly, righteous judgment that ought to be a part of our Christian experience. We saw it in Proverbs, right? We have to be able to make godly and righteous judgments about all sorts of things. You ready for this? Including other people. It's not wrong to make a judgment about another person as long as you are employing biblical uh, direction and guidance in making that judgment. So here are some wrong ways of judging that we want to avoid. Okay, so let's just look at these together. In Matthew chapter 7, this is the, the verse we've been dancing around here. Matthew chapter 7. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Uh, you can turn over there if you want to. Um, do you want to look over? Yeah, probably probably good to have you turn over there just so you've you got it in front of you. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. This this is where that, uh, that oft-quoted, uh, wrongly used verse is, Judge not lest you be judged. Uh, the Nasby says, chapter 7, verse 1, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. From the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. We say, well, what is Jesus getting at there? I mean, it sounds like he's saying don't judge at all. Well, we know that's not the case because in, in John seven twenty four he told us we ought to judge with the right judgment. This, this, is, a great, this is a great time to remember a, a very basic principle of Bible interpretation. If you've got two verses that seem to contradict each other, judge not lest you be judged, judge with a righteous judgment, what we need to do is look at both of them and say, okay, well, how do these verses go together? And the problem is Matthew 7, 1 is being ripped out of its context. People that say, judge not lest you be judged, they're taking that verse out of context and they're making it the only thing the Bible has to say about judgment. And it just kind of trumps it. You know, you know what I've learned? that people that quote that verse are probably doing something they ought not to do. You notice that? And they know it. Yeah, and, and actually they, they have a conscience about it. Yeah, so that, that's really, that's really you know, there, there are people that are living in sin and they are using the Bible to justify it. That's a dangerous place to be, isn't it? So anyway, that's just been my experience. So, so Jesus is not here saying you don't ever judge about anything for any reason. And we've looked at other passages of Scripture that clearly make that true, right? What is Jesus condemning here? In the same matter you judge others, you will be judged. So what is he saying? He's saying be careful how you judge other people because that's likely going to be the standard by which they judge you. And then he's going to tell this little parable that, that I affectionately call Mr. Log and Mr. Speck, okay? So we won't do the whole thing. But look at chapter 7, verse 3. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye 
and behold, the log is in your own eye. Uh, someone asked me this week, uh, one, one of the kids in Awana asked me if, if the Bible is ever funny, if there's ever any sort of sanctified humor in the Bible. Well, the answer is yes, and here's an example. Uh, Jesus is talking about a man who's walking around with a two-by-six coming out of his head. That's funny, isn't it, Caleb? Caleb's snickering right there. That's, that's funny when you think about it. You picture, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to go, right? Because it's so crazy. And Jesus says, if you can imagine Mr. Log walking around with a two-by-eight, and there's some guy that's got one teeny tiny little speck of dust right outside of his right eye, and he comes up and he rebukes Mr. Log. Right? Or, or actually, it's the other way around, right? Mr. Log goes and rebukes Mr. Speck and says, oh, you got this little speck there, and he's got the log. And that's kind of hypocritical, isn't it? That's what Jesus is condemning. He's not saying don't judge ever for any reason. He's saying don't judge as a hypocrite. In other words, if you're going to point something out in somebody else's life in love and in care, and there's a time to do that, Make sure you've evaluated your own heart first to ensure that you're not violating the same thing. That's what he's saying. That, that's hypocritical judgment. Do you see the difference? Now notice that at the end of the verse, Jesus says, How dare you? Judge not lest you be judged, you sinner. Is that what he says? No, he says what? First remove the log from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to help your brother. See, it, it's not like, oh, I just never judge him again. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'll, I'll be tolerant. It's I need to deal with my own sin first. And once I deal with my own sin first, then I can go to help my brother and sister with the issue that I see in their life. See, judging is right. I just need to deal with my own heart first, right? Here's another area we need to avoid. Inaccurate judgment. That's what was happening in John 7, right? They were misunderstanding Sabbath laws. And they thought Jesus heals this guy on the Sabbath. They're going, sinner, how dare you do a good act on the Sabbath day? And Jesus is like, man, the Sabbath is not this thing that is designed to restrict people from doing good things. Now, remember what he says in another passage? The, the man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for the man, right? meaning for the benefit of the man. It's not wrong to do good on the Sabbath day. See, they, they had misunderstood. So the takeaway here is we commit error and sin when we are judging wrongly. Now, I don't want to get too personal here, but you know one of the ways we do this? We judge other people based on things that annoy us and our preferences rather than on true sin that might help them with their walk with God were we to talk to them about it. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands, but one of the things that convicts me about this is I am probably most critical of other people, not because of things that God says are sin and I'm desiring their repentance, but I'm critical of other people for things like how they drive. You know... Their, 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 their efficiency at the register, at the checkout. Or lack of a... Yeah, yeah okay, see? Uh-huh, I'm not the only one, I can tell. Right? And I just have this rising up of how dare you over things that God says I don't care about. 
And it kind of goes back to James 4, doesn't it? To the, begin, the beginning of the chapter. I'm wanting something and I'm not getting it. And very often that's just a preference issue. You know, God wants us to have a strong response against things that are really sin. When we see people demeaning the name of God, violating His law, um, uh, calling good evil and evil good, we ought to have a strong moral emotional response to that and then respond in a godly way about what we do about it. That, that's, that's what that judgment is for. But in our sin and fallenness, you know, I'm rising up in anger and criticism and judgment because <clears throat> I'm annoyed. Because I don't like you doing that and you shouldn't do that. Why is that? Because Keith doesn't like it. And that's wrong. That's just, that's just good old garden variety selfishness. Um, so inaccurate judgment. Notice too the hyperbole that Jesus uses here. If you still have Matthew 7 open, log and speck. Do, do you hear the hyperbole? Uh, you literature people, you English majors remember that. What's hyperbole? What's that? It's exaggeration to make a point, right? Jesus isn't actually expecting people in the first century to walk around and have this big you know, tree coming out of their neck or something like that. He's exaggerating to make a point. And yes, it is funny, but, but his point is also this. Listen, when we're not dealing with sin in our own hearts, we magnify the sins of other people and we minimize our own. Have you noticed that? That sin is kind of like a carnival mirror, right? I look at myself and I'm like, oh, wow, I look like Shaquille O'Neal. Let's go join the NBA. And then I look at, you know, this other person. And he's like, you know, that sin is like a carnival mirror. It distorts our perception of reality. And, and the favorite way of fallen people in terms of how that works is when I'm especially dealing with sin in my heart, my perception is to minimize my own sin and it magnifies your sin. And that leads to a, an inaccurate judgment. That's why if, if, if you're struggling with conflict with somebody, the first step is to deal with your part of it first. You say, why is that? You will see the other person's faults radically in a different way once you've dealt with your own sin in your own heart. And you know that. You've done that before, right? That, that thing you thought your spouse was, it was an egregious offense and they, they were horrible. And I can't believe that they did that. And then you, you started to see your own sin in your own heart, right? And then you started to deal with that. And then, what did Jesus say? Then you will see clearly. And then you, you think about what that, what your spouse did that, you know, it, it was a, it was a first degree felony a couple of minutes ago in your mind. And now you're going, why did I ever get upset about that? Because your perception changes when you deal with your own heart. Make sense? So we want to avoid that. Number three, <clears throat> we want to avoid final judgment. Now, let's, that, that was our introduction. Let's go back to James now. <clears throat> to James chapter 4. James says in chapter 4, verse 12, Why should you not speak against another? Why, why is judging your brother so wrong? Well, Understand, again, James is not condemning all judgment. We've seen that from these other places in Scripture. What is he condemning? Well, look at what he says here. He says, if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. What does that tell us? 
What kind of judgment is James condemning? When you are not a doer of the law, but you're a judge of it. You're a hypocrite. Right back to hypocritical judgment. And so James is saying the exact same thing, really, as what Jesus is saying in Matthew 7. Remember I told you at the beginning of our study that the book of James is almost like the Sermon on the Mount in miniature? It's a condescension? Condensation? Condes- yeah, yeah. He's making it smaller, right? He's bringing it down to a summary of what the Gospels teach. And we see that same thing here, right? So what is what is the violation here? Well, look at verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. What did Jesus say elsewhere? By your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Don't don't fear those that can kill the body, right? Kill the or, or fear the one who, after he has destroyed, has authority to send both soul and body. To hell. So we see these, these parallels here with, with the life and ministry of Jesus. And so we violate judgment when we exercise a final judgment, when we're playing God. And that's what James is getting at here. You're acting like you have authority to make final judgment in someone, some other person's life. You're playing God. And that's, that's something to do. Uh, that's something to avoid, is, is a final judgment. And then one final thing, we won't turn there, but Colossians 4, 6, you, you know this, um, let your speech always be with grace, as it were, seasoned with salt. Which means, even if we are judging another person biblically and rightly, we always want to do it with what? With grace and mercy. Remembering that I'm the chief of sinners, even as I come to point out maybe the sin of somebody else. Okay? So with that in mind, that's just kind of all getting us thinking about James. Here's what James is saying. When he says, do not speak against or judge others, chapter 4, verse 11 in, in James now, that references using one's own opinion rather than the law or word of God as the standard. Do you see that? When I get annoyed because somebody's not driving the way I think they should drive on 377, I'm taking my own standard and I am condemning other people in judgment. And what James is saying is, that's wrong. Because believers, when they rightly judge, when they exercise a godly judgment, are supposed to employ the word of God, not my preferences and opinions. So that, that's, that's reason number one it's wrong. Reason number two is that James seems also to have in mind the idea of hypocritical judgment in the sense that they're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it, right? So we're right back thinking about um, Matthew chapter 7 here. And finally, James is condemning uh, putting yourself in place of God in speaking against or providing final judgment on a person. Okay, does that make sense? So what's he saying? Use God's word, not your own standard. Deal with your own heart first. Don't be a hypocrite. And three, don't play God. Um, you know, healthy, mature, biblical Christianity means we're going to be going to one another in the church, in our families, in our marriages, with our kids. We're going to be going to them bringing judgments on their behavior and on their words. And there's a right and wrong way to do that. 
if we, guys, if we do that correctly, that leads to godliness and maturity and flourishing and repentance and the confession of sin and, and we all grow more to be like Jesus. If we do that wrongly or often if we receive it wrongly, that's a whole other sermon for another day, there's all sorts of things that go wrong and we break relationships, we hurt other people, we, we alienate uh, uh, friends from others and so, so let, let's, let's remember this. There is a right way to do judgment and this is where we need to stick to it. Um, at the same time, we want to avoid uh, these errors in terms of doing it in the wrong way. Okay, does that make sense? You with me? Okay. Now, he's going to relate this now to something that may not initially seem to be applicable or, or relatable in that way. He's going to ask this. Does your pride drive your planning? You say, what's the connection? The same pride that keeps me in love with my way and loving to get my way that leads to conflict is the same pride that drives sinful and critical judgment of other people is the same pride that causes me to think about my future in an ungodly way. So pride is the common thread between all three of these themes in James chapter 4. So let's look at this very quickly. Look at verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you, bo- you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, here's the conclusion. To one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Okay, so let's look at this together. James does not seem in this uh, verse to be condemning thoughtful planning. I looked at this, and, and a lot of people think, uh, James is, what James is saying is, Christians should, short, should live in the moment. Right? Just live in the moment. Don't think about saving your money. Don't think about planning you know, mission trips or gospel interactions. I mean, j- just live in the moment. right? Don't plan because that's arrogant. That's not what he's saying. And we know that James is not condemning proper planning, again, because other places in Scripture make that very clear. We won't turn there, but I just put down one of many examples in Proverbs 6, verses 6 to 8. Uh, that's where uh, Solomon calls out for his kids the ant. The ant. Remember the ant? Go to the ant, you sluggard, and observe her ways, who having no chief or ruler does what? What does the ant do that's so commendable and so admirable? What's that? Yeah, they, they, they store up food for the future, don't they? And Solomon uses that as an analogy for his kids to say, hey, you need to plan for the future. You need to think about, you know, in harvest time, putting some of that away so that in the dead of winter when nothing's growing, you have something to eat, right? So James is not here condemning thoughtful planning, and, and the Bible is clear on that. What he is condemning is prideful planning that fails to acknowledge the sovereignty of God over all things. That's what he's condemning. When we make our plans, whether it's for vacation or retirement or our child's education or a relationship or whatever, 
I mean, it, it could be something as simple as I'm planning to go to a restaurant this afternoon and I get there and uh, they had a plumbing leak and it's closed. How do I respond to that? Okay, question? Yeah. That's right. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so you know, counting the cost and, and being a good steward, th- those are all factors into planning, absolutely. So that, that would be another input to put here. Um, I, I think what he's, what he's condemning, what he's focusing on is saying, now, now, now follow the logic here. In chapter 4, verse 1, it's, I must have my way, right? In the verses we just looked at, it's, you shouldn't do that. Here, it's, my plans have to come together. So, so here, here's the here. Well, are you are you hanging on? Here's the real difficult question. Okay, how do you respond when your plans don't go your way? Um, I, I was going to do a little excerpt on being a control freak here, and it was just way too personally condemning. So I, I decided not to do that. Um, oh my goodness! Isn't that true? You know, when, when the history books are written, one of the things that generations of Christians after us will say about our generation, about 2020, is this. Did Christians care more about their mission of spreading the gospel during the most significant historic event in a hundred years in our world? Or did they fuss more about their plans being thwarted? They're going to talk about that. Our our great-great-grandchildren are going to talk about that. And that's condemning, isn't it? Because what James is saying is we make our plans. Well, how do you know if you're making your plans are, are, are good stewardship or presumption? Answer, do you say what he says here? What we should say is what? If the Lord wills. How does the proverb go? The mind of man plans his ways, but God redirects his steps. Right? We know we have a heart of trust and humility when God sovereignly changes our plans, or maybe maybe He throws a wrench right into the gears of our life, like last year, how do we respond? And if we're trusting in God, we're trusting uh, His sovereignty, if we're believing that His ways are good, and whatever whatever He does is best for us. Did you hear that in Psalm 119 today? Whatever He does is best for us. Theological test. Who knows better for your life, us or God? I didn't hear that. What was that? God does, right? So why do our emotions often say something different than that when our plans don't go our way? And the answer is, I think we really don't live what we say we believe. We say God knows best, 
but man, I'm grumbling and, and griping all the time going, going down the road behind that driver who's thwarting my plan for the day, right? Look at this. Believers should exercise a humble acknowledgement of the Lord's will over their plans rather than an arrogant confidence regarding their plans. Believers always qualify their desires and plans with not my will, but your will be done. That sounds biblical, doesn't it? We just talked about that. Pastor Terry just talked about that last Good Friday, right? Remember that? He's in the garden. If it's possible, Lord, let this cup pass, right? But what? Not my will, but your will be done. We, we reflect the mind and heart of Jesus when we submit joyfully to the plans of the Father who often redirects our steps and often frustrates our plans because he's a good and kind father and he knows what we really need and what's best. And you know what I found, guys? I, I'm, I'm in the middle of all this like you are. I'm trying to figure this out. When I believe that, when, I'm there, when my heart is there and I'm resting and whatever God just did to my day planner, and I'm like, yes, I don't know, Lord, but I trust you. You know what? That's a wonderful way to live. It frees you from anxiety. It frees you from hyper, what am I going to do, planning and frustration. It, it, it is a joyful place to be, to rest in and trust in your God who's going to redirect your steps. Because we know Him, don't we? We trust Him. We know He's good. We know He knows better. And to rest in that rather than to fight against it is an incredible place to be. Last thing here. James also reminds believers to avoid boasting about the certainty of their plans. This is just a, a good footnote to just, let's just be careful what we're talking about. Let's talk about our future and talk about our plans with a humble acknowledgement of the Lord's will rather than an arrogant confidence. And one final thing. Look at this. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. You say, how does that fit in? It could be just reminding us about the immediate context. It could be talking about the first four chapters of James. But regardless, here's the takeaway. We are responsible to live out now everything that we've heard. Uh, we call these sins of omission. You say, what's that? A sin of omission is knowing the right thing to do and not doing it. So let's now ask God for grace to be good stewards to not just be hearers of what we've been gaining in the book of James, but to be effective and faithful doers. Because um, we, are, we are stewards of these things that we've learned now. I ignorance is no longer an option, is it? Uh, so let's be faithful to what we've heard. Uh, let's pray together. Father, thank you for time together. Uh, James, once again, has indicted us. Uh, your Holy Spirit, through his word, has once again yielded the spiritual scalpel of the King of Kings and, and, and that divine healer who wants to do surgery in our hearts to make us more like Christ. Uh, Father, we thank you that you love us enough to shoot straight with us about these things. We know that so much of our judgment is critical. We know that... Um, we make our plans often arrogantly and we get frustrated and angry when they don't go our way. Lord, humble us. 
You are opposed to the proud, but you give grace to the humble. Humble us that with our wants, with our plans, and with people around us, that we would be people that act in wisdom and humility and an ultimate trust in you. Lord, bring us to that sweet place of simply relying in and trusting on you, whatever you choose to do in reorchestrating our life, because we know you, and we know you love us, and we know you know what's best. Help us to rest in that even this week. In Christ's name, amen.